0: National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life.
1: The church in Germany was the focus of many Catholic news headlines this week as Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI responded to a report that faulted his handling of sexual abuse cases in the Archdiocese of Munich when he led the diocese. Register reporter Edward Penton brings us the story from Rome. Then we turn to another controversy that erupted in a German news interview with Cardinal Jean Claude Ulrich of Luxembourg, who is the General of the Synod on Synodality. That seems his interview seems to undermine the integrity of Catholic doctrine. Register Senior Editor Jonathan Liedl brings us analysis of that story. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Editor-in-Chief of the National Catholic Register and your host on Register Radio. I'm joined by my co-host Matthew Bunsen in the EWTN News Washington Bureau. Uh, Matthew, as everyone knows, is the Executive Editor of EWTN News. Matthew, hello.
2: Hello. Great to be with you. (laughs) Uh, Another uh, action-packed week in terms of news.
1: (laughs) Very much so, Um, and it's a a bit tense news, contentious news, and uh, that's never very fun to follow but of course it's it's necessary Uh, and uh, of course our our trusted reporter veteran vaticanista Edward Penton joins us now from Rome Edward welcome back to register radio
3: Hi, good to be with you.
1: So Edward Benedict 16th has spoken out this week uh, in response to allegations made about his handling of sexual abuse cases. Uh, these cases were back in the 1970s and 1980s in the Archdiocese of Munich when he was Archbishop there. First of all, I mean, what was he actually accused of?
3: Well, uh, there were four cases uh, that were... Uh, Brought up between 1977 and 1982, which is when he was Archbishop of Munich and Freising. And these cases were, he was basically accused of in this report that uh, came out on the 20th of January, this, this long investigation into not just those years, but um, over about, uh, I think, from I think the f- 1950 until 19 till 2019. So it's a long period, but they focus primarily on these years, of course, because those were when Benedict uh, was Archbishop of of Munich, and I think. This is partly why I think these, these cases got so much publicity, of course, because that was uh, that was when he was archbishop. But the the actual cases that were highlighted were denied by Benedict. They were denied by his advisors. He has four lawyers who were looking at these cases that this study brought out. And they said that these allegations were not true. And they basically involved a transfer of a a priest from Essen Diocese to the Archdiocese of Munich during Archbishop Ratzinger's uh, time in Munich. And he claims, the claim is that he knew that this priest uh, was an abuser, but he actually allowed him to carry on his priestly work in the diocese. Now, he's, this is the main case that's, that's charged against him. He claims that, and rather his lawyers also uh, claim that uh, Carter Ratzinger didn't know about uh, his abuse. He, in fact, all of these four cases, he claims to have been unaware that they were abuse cases. As far as he was aware, this, this priest was simply being transferred to Munich uh, because he needed therapy. So, so the charges he maintains and his lawyers maintain don't hold up, mm-hmm. and that basically he is uh, not guilty of any of these cases because he didn't know that, and that the abuse was involved in any of them
1: right right and so now he has actually spoken out not simply through uh, his advisors uh, these these lawyers that you mentioned he's actually given a letter uh, in his own voice that was read by his top advisor uh, Geinfein Archbishop Geinstein what did he say in that letter
3: basically a uh, uh, very much a apology he's, he's asked for, for forgiveness for the sins that he's committed not just but not just him of course but sort of a sort of institutional he's taking a sort of institutional blame for what happened but he says that um uh, he but he doesn't he doesn't go into all the cases but what he does do is is as i say give this sort of collective ask for plea for forgiveness and he also says that he also thanks of course those who were Who've helped him just sort of get through these these past few weeks and and go through the documents and and come to some sort of um, some sort of conclusion. But what he what he says at the end is that you know he's coming to the end of his life and he really uh, wants he just places his life in the in the mercy of God and that all that he's done um, he's obviously apologised for any wrongdoing that he's done, but he doesn't actually admit to any wrongdoing if, uh, regarding uh, sexual abuse cases. He d- Not not personally, anyway, he doesn't take that on board. But what he does do, as I say, is he takes on this, this collective responsibility, both when he was in Germany and in his service, of course, as Pope and as CDF prefect uh, in Rome. Yeah, Edward, uh, uh, picking up on that, uh, this document, this letter, as you
2: say, it, it has a, a, an apology in it, but it also strikes me as a, a very profound reflection of someone who is about to turn 95, I believe, uh, who recognizes that uh, however long he has, it it will not be particularly long compared to the rest of his life. And this reflection, I think, is... uh Pretty powerful, isn't it?
3: Yes, I mean, I think it is. It's it, it's it's very. I think a lot of people would say it's very humble. It's it's a very sort of t- taking it upon himself, even though he didn't really have to, in a sense, because he he doesn't believe he's in any way uh, guilty of these these accusations against him. And he he recalls, you know, that he, on these apostolic journeys that he made as pope, um, he met victims of sexual abuse, and has always talked about. He called it the most grievous fault uh, of sexual abuse, and that he was profoundly sorry for these these cases. He feels profound uh, shame, deep sorrow, and he has a heartfelt request for forgiveness. So it was, it is a very powerful letter. It's a it's something that I think will certainly sort of draw a line under this issue, I think, for, for Benedict regarding sexual abuse. As many people have pointed out, he's he pioneered a lot of the work in terms of dealing with sexual abuse, both as prefect of the CDF and then as Pope. And so I think a lot of people will, will think, well, his, his record is pretty clear, really. And uh, although the, there are these cases, they're very questionable. And as his lawyers have said, there's no real... Um, case to be made regarding these four cases Mm -hmm. against him.
1: You're listening to Register Radio. I'm Jeanette DeMello, the uh, host of this show and editor-in-chief of the National Catholic Register. And we're talking to Edward Penton, our Vatican correspondent, about Benedict XVI's letter uh, on this Munich uh, sexual abuse report. Uh, Edward, how have critics responded? Uh, what what has basically been the, gen- the general sense or, or um, sentiment about uh, this letter that Benedict issued on, on February 8th?
3: Well, I think generally it's. I think in Rome it's been better than I think in Germany. I think in Germany there's still that sense that uh, he hasn't. He's done something wrong. He hasn't. um,
1: Mm. He hasn't
3: really. uh, Hasn't really exonerated himself. Um, And of course there was this issue which which you haven't mentioned yet about um, this mistake that was made about him saying that he wasn't at a meeting in in. 1980, which which was about transferring this priest to Munich and, and allowing him to continue, even though he was an abuser, he claims that he he claimed that he wasn't at that meeting, though um, the public record shows that he was, and that was merely a mistake he says made by a transfer of files, which. Um, which was a mistake one of his lawyers made. And that does seem certainly plausible because this was public knowledge. Even back in 2010, Mm -hmm. this meeting was known about and it was known that that Benedict was there. So for him to suddenly say that he wasn't at that meeting would be certainly very much out of character. Um, And people accused him of lying, which, of course, uh, anyone who knows Benedict knows that he, he does not. Lie by usually, <laughs> right. and so his pers- it, it pursuit of, of truth character. is
1: clear. Exactly, his, exactly. his pursuit yes. of of truth seems yes. quite clear. I've seen um, uh, an interview at Catholic, uh, excuse me, at the Vatican News um, with. Uh, um, Father Lombardi, who was the spokesperson for uh, Pope Benedict, who just testified in that interview to his truthfulness. That's one thing that that Benedict is just well, known for: is that defense well, it's, of truth.
3: It's, yes, well, it's his episcopal motto, of course, which is "co-workers of the truth." So, <laughs> so right. it'd be very unlikely. is veritatis, yeah.
1: Exactly, and I think that's one of the things that um, Pope Benedict does in this letter is he says he kind of addresses that uh, that process that happened as. As they compiled this 82-page testimony, a 90, nearly 95-year-old man working with lawyers to remember a time so so long ago, and and really responding to um, these uh, questions and uh, that this law firm was going through, so it, it sounded like quite an extensive process. And he's acknowledging, yes, these mistakes can cause question, but let me say, <laughs> you know, this mm-hmm. is this is my involvement, and this is this is where I am, uh, Father uh, Raymond De Souza. Uh, Uh, writing, you know, obviously his column for The Register, wrote this week about uh, the Pope's letter being a spiritual reflection. I mean, much more so than, let's say, setting a record straight. Uh, he is He's calling this a, a spiritual reflection about a man who understands the gravity of the problem of sexual abuse, um, and also the role that uh, church leaders play in making reparation. Um, and, and so I think Father D'Souza did a really nice job this week in his column showing that Benedict's uh, letter is to be read uh, as as a spiritual reflection, and uh, the title of it is Pope Benedict's Departure from Public Relations Handbook. It was published on February 9th, and I think it's worth I think it's worth a read. Edward, you have been writing, or you have written about um, Archbishop Geinstein, um giving an interview that uh, is also seeking, in a way, to defend uh, Benedict. Uh, what was written? Or what was said, I suppose, in that interview with uh, de la Sera.
3: Yes, well, the the interview is really about a book uh, which he's he's just had published. But he does mention uh, very briefly, uh, makes an interesting comment, which is he's asked about uh, how what does he make of these attacks on Benedict, and he he says, well there's a movement out uh, not only to destroy Benedict's person and life but also the views the current moment that is these challenges and these these attacks as an opportunity to erase him from the official memory of the church this is this is what he says and it's quite a obviously a strong uh, comment a strong claim but that that is um, quite widely felt here in Rome that there, there is a sense that that uh, Benedict is under attack because they want to really attack not just his person but also his teaching and to sort of move that aside so that um, they can push uh, their own agendas
1: That's right and what you have heard and what you have seen in your reporting is that there have been some there has been somewhat of an uneven handling of the church leaders who've been involved in, in handling sexual abuse over the years in Germany what, mm-hmm. um, what have you heard in that regard about this uh, kind of uneven handling of, of the prelates?
3: Yes, well, I think it's quite clear that those prelates who are um, tend to be of, of orthodox belief, who who tend to stick to, to the church's teaching and magisterium, they seem to be under a lot more attack for, for their… Uh, by the media. And by the media especially, but, um, but also within the church, within the German church, within the, the, their brother bishops, they also attack them especially hard for their record on abuse, even though they might be exonerated, uh, as in the case of Cardinal Volki of Cologne. So it's it's interesting. And yet those who are very much at the agenda, but do have problems of abuse, uh, covering up abuse, they tend to get off rather scot-free. So it's, it's very much, it's very clear to see... Um, the sort of difference in treatment between the mm-hmm. two the two parties.
1: Very good. Well, Edward Penton, thank you for your reports from Rome on this issue and our listeners can go to ncregister.com and search for Benedict the 16th issues letter on Munich abuse report and you can find the full letter of Pope Benedict's letter on this very topic. Edward, thank you so much.
3: Sure, thanks thanks a lot.
1: We'll be taking a short break, and then we'll be joined by Jonathan Liddle on an analysis of a recent remark from the Relator General of the Synod on Synodality. This is Register Radio on EWTN.
0: Pursue what matters most in 2022: life, liberty, truth. From the Capitol to the Classroom, from the Pulpit to the Pew, EWTN's National Catholic Register delivers in-depth news, analysis, and commentary through the lens of the Catholic faith. With so much at stake in our country, there's never been a more important time to read the Register. And with award-winning Catholic journalism that goes beyond what you'll find from any secular news service, you'll get the real story behind the events that unfold over the course of the year. Try the Register for free today and get it delivered to your home, office, or parish. Get six free issues today online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio, the National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN.
1: Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, editor in chief of the National Catholic Register and your host for Register Radio. I'm joined from the EWTN News Washington studio by Matthew Bunsen, executive editor of EWTN News. Uh, The German church has been the topic of our conversation today. We just spoke with Edward Penton about Benedict XVI, who's been in the spotlight over sexual abuse handling or his handling of sexual abuse cases in uh, the 1970s and 80s. And now we're turning uh, to the topic of uh, the Synod on Synodality, and, and really how it relates <laughs> to the German Church is, is by way of a, an interview uh, that was done uh, in a German newspaper, and it was with uh, a German speaker, although he's not from Germany, and that is uh, Cardinal Jean-Claude Ullrich, uh from Luxembourg. Uh, So, there's this interview, he's in the spotlight because he is um, leading the synod on synodality and he said something in this interview that really caught a lot of attention. Jonathan Leto. Uh, senior editor for the Register has been uh, has written an analysis on the very topic of uh, what Ulrich Cardinal Ulrich said that really has caught so much attention. Well, welcome back to John. Uh, welcome back to Register Radio, Jonathan.
4: Great to be here, Jeanette and Matthew.
1: So Cardinal Olerick has said something that caused quite a stir. It relates uh, to uh, the destabilization of doctrine. So your t- the title of your blog, Cardinal Olerick and the Destabilization of Doctrine, and I, I have not even set up well <laughs> what he said, and I prefer to just let you do that because you spent a good deal of time this week, really trying to understand it and how it matters to us. So first of all, what what caused the stir? What was so surprising about what he said?
4: Absolutely, Jeanette. So so Cardinal Allerk had this uh, interview with KNA, which is a German Catholic news agency, and it was kind of a, one of these wide-ranging interviews where a, a lot of different questions are asked. Uh, uh, but the, the reporter, the person giving the interview, asked him, the, He's he asked the question, how do you get around the ter- church's teaching that homosexuality is a sin? First of all, on the question itself, we know that the church does not teach that someone experiencing same-sex attractions is a sin, but but acting on that is, is the sin. But Carter Haller, didn't, he didn't clarify the question or anything like that. Uh, he just dove right into it and he said, I believe that this is false. The church's teaching on homosexuality. He said he believed that the sociological scientific foundation of that teaching is no longer correct. And he went on to kind of give some more context into what he was talking about when he says sociological scientific foundation. Uh, he referred to uh, some ancient uh, ideas about embryology uh, that, that might have been off, that might have m- might imply uh, kind of changes in the ways of thinking about homosexuality. And he also said that same-sex acts at the time were, were connected to uh, pagan cultic acts. And so that was what re- really was being condemned. But yeah, it was a really astounding claim to say that the church's teaching uh, related to homosexuality uh, is false because, of course, as we know, you know, the church doesn't primarily teach about same-sex acts. The church teaches about faith and morality. It teaches about human flourishing, and it teaches about how human sexuality is a part of that flourishing. So really, to to come at this and say that, that this aspect of the church's teaching is false, it's built on a, a faulty sociological scientific foundation, I think is really to to undermine kind of the entirety of the church's understanding of uh, sexual morality and how uh, human sexuality is directed towards the conjugal love of a husband and wife. Uh, so right. it was, yeah, it was a bit of a bombshell for sure.
1: Yes, I mean, we'll get more into why that is that is precisely so concerning and why it is sort of the destabilization of doctrine. i just as your the title of your blog put it, but what also made this very sh- strange is y- you know it was only a month ago, and you you point this out in the beginning of your blog that he uh, gave another interview that that asked him about the women deacons, when might we see a change or, you know, the allowing of women deacons or even married married priest, you know. And, and he basically said those, I'm okay with that, but these reforms would need a stable foundation, quotes, a stable foundation um, for such reforms. And right now, there is no such stable foundation for those re- reforms Is what he seemed to be implying. Those reforms he seems to be implying mm-hmm. would lead to schism, And so, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is how can the same person have those two thoughts? And Matthew, you know, you mentioned before when we were bantering before the show that um, that you know Cardinal Ulrich. And so this came as a little bit of a surprise to you.
2: Well, I've I've, uh, met him several times. I've interviewed him several times. uh, And during the Synod on on the Amazonian questions, uh, I thought he was very consistent in many of the things that uh, he was talking about. It came as a surprise to a lot of us because, uh, as you note, uh, this is the Relator General for the Synod on Synodality. What this means is that he is going to be one of the key individuals, the key officials in the Church who will be guiding this process of the Synod of Bishops. And as we saw, With the the Synod on the Amazon, we ended up with a document uh, that was quite alarming uh, to a lot of people. Now, Pope Francis chose not to accept most of the most radical of the ideas that were being posited, but the fact that they made it into the final report is telling, and we don't know exactly what the structure and the outcomes of the Synod on Synodality are going to be. So I think it's important to focus on the, the
4: comments of Cardinal Ulrich.
1: Mm-hmm. And Jonathan, what is your take on how someone could have such apparently contradictory ideas?
4: I think it really, I think it is very interesting. And the two the two ideas are actually very related, uh, just in my own kind of interpretation, because if we look at Cardinal Olerick talking about a stable foundation, in the context of discussing really ordaining women as deaconesses uh is my understanding the stable foundation that we need to be drawing from is that the doctrine of the Church, right? Is the the deposit of faith, uh, the sources of divine revelation, Scripture and tradition, that have been uh, explained and taught by the Magisterium over two thousand years? And so, I'm not, you know, not an expert on the question of women deacon and deacons, but my understanding is the Church has repeatedly, consistently affirmed that uh, men men uh, men are only men can be ordained to to holy orders. That that's the the kind of material requirement for ordination. So I found I do find it very interesting that he said in the context of a conversation about women deaconesses, I'm not in favor. Excuse me, I'm not opposed to it. In fact, I think he said I like the idea of it, but we need a stable foundation. Mm-hmm. So to me, that suggests not not going back, uh, not the stable foundation that the church provides, but we almost need to create a stable foundation uh, so that we can achieve this goal we have. And I think his. His concerns, at least in that interview, they seem to be about avoiding schism, right? They, they didn't seem to necessarily be about uh, being consistent with what the church has taught and, and has always taught and has always understood about holy orders, but about avoiding schism so
1: mm-hmm.
4: to me I read that to, to kind of indicate we need to do this gradually we need to do this slowly but not necessarily we need to do it in an Orthodox way uh, which I think is yeah connected to uh, at least my understanding of, of kind of what undergirded his comments on the church's teaching about same-sex acts
2: right and and another way of expressing it would be just substitute for example a stable foundation for a theological rationale and mm. if we look at it from that standpoint then, Uh, The the very ideas that are being espoused uh, as we are speaking here today at the, the synodal path in Germany, they are trying to provide a theological rationale for unraveling many of the pillars of church teaching and to provide a kind of alternate foundation, that stable foundation for what they want to do, both in terms of the ordination of women and of course in uh, the church's teachings on homosexuality and, and human sexuality writ large.
1: And that's part of the reason that, it, you know, I've kind of put these two shows together. We're talking about, you know, the the German church and the sexual abuse crisis in the German church. The German synod used that as a, a, a stepping off point, saying, okay, the church has lost credibility. Let's, uh, you know, uh, ostensibly use that as a way of, of, of talking to to the church and figuring out how we can restore credibility for for the church, and yet instead of um, of doing that by presenting representing the timeless truths of the faith what they have done is used it to kind of reconstruct <laughs> the foundation mm. um, of faith mm-hmm. and and so what we find here is as a fear that that's going to happen in the in the synod on synodality which is not you know run by the germans but but here you you revive that fear um, and the pope pope has made it clear that he wants this to be a time of listening and representing the teaching but here you have it there's there's concern uh because because of these kinds of statements about this something that is is not based on the foundation of the church as you uh, so um uh, point out so well jonathan in your blog
4: yeah I, absolutely Jeanette. and i think you know Card- cardinal Holleric in his comments his justification for why the church needs to have what he calls a grund revision i don't speak german but that's the word he uses and it means like uh a foundational revising of his teaching on on sexuality uh, is so that it stays in touch with the times. He's he's quoted in this interview. Uh, he says, "The change in civilization we are witnessing today is the greatest change since the invention of the wheel. The church has always moved with the times and has always adapted, but one always has much more time to do that. Today we must be faster; otherwise, we lose contact and can no more be understood." Yeah, I think it's it, similar to what you're talking about in Germany. It's this idea that the, the church, that the most important thing is, is a kind of mainstream relevance and that the church mm-hmm. uh, doesn't want to lose contact with, uh, you know, the normal people of today. And we definitely don't. But my worry, I think, is that, you know, if you scrap what the church has to offer, which is the truth and life of Jesus Christ, if you say that's not our foundation, we need to come up with something else, you know, what do you really gain uh, if, if you become... Super relevant, but are disconnected from that. If you don't have that to offer to the world, so that's uh, yeah, I think that's certainly a concern we're seeing in these these different areas in like right.
1: Well, jumping in very very briefly on something you've recently written about, um, you've written about a new doctor of the church, and it's an old doctor <laughs> who is um, being presented right um, um, for for these times, Saint Irenaeus, and um, and there's a real mm-hmm. significance for us in that today. I'm uh, y- you know you wrote a wonderful piece, Saint Irenaeus, the church's new doctor. What's his significance today and who's next? Matthew, you are the historian. Uh, you have a great love and respect for St. Irenaeus. And I'll let you close with, a, with um, some of his very own words.
2: Well, he said something that's very germane to this conversation and to what we're seeing playing out in Germany and elsewhere. He said that error is never set forth in its naked deformity. It should at once be detected otherwise, but it is craftily decked out in an attractive dress. <laughs> to make it appear to the inexperienced more true than truth itself. And the solution for him was always the same, the clear teachings of the Church, proclaimed given to us by Christ, and handed down to the Apostles.
1: Very nice. Well, well that is certainly what we are all about here at The Register. And Jonathan uh, Lidl, Matthew Bunsen, thank you so much um, for, for pointing out that timeless truth uh, constantly in your work with us. Remember, for more news, analysis, and commentary, check out the National Catholic Register online at ncregister.com. Thanks for joining us on Register Radio here on EWTN. For Matthew Bunsen and our producer, Rich Jesse, I'm Jeanette Mello. Until next week, God bless you.
0: For more information about the National Catholic Register and about Register Radio, go to ncregister.com. Podcasts of Register Radio are posted on ncregister.com and on EWTN.com. Join us next week at this time for Register Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.